Well, good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing today? It is so good to see all of you today. So I dress myself, and um, uh, when I when I put this on, this particular shirt just doesn't lay. It's a long. It doesn't lay right. So I decided to tuck it in. I know I'm breaking a lot of rules. So I tucked it in. I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll just wear a jacket over it. So I went down. My two uh, daughter-in-laws were down there. I go, so how do I look in this? should never ask that question to anybody. But they went, you look great. That, I think that works. Yeah, that, it, I think it's good. So Allison was in the driveway. So I walked out to the driveway. And I, I go, she goes, take that off right now. So I took it off and put it back upstairs. I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and I went, welcome to Target. Can I help you find <laughs> anything? And uh, so I shared this on Thursday night, and the camera people said, no, you're Jake from State Farm. That's who you are. <laughs> yeah, what are you wearing, khakis? All right, so just... Just saying, I want to welcome all of our locations that are joining all over this region. So thankful for each and every one of you. And if you're inside or online, we're thankful for you that we get to do life together and experience the presence of the Lord together. There's nothing quite like it. You know, we all deal with self-esteem issues. All of us do at some level, like with, with what you're wearing. And I've noticed that there's a big difference in my generation and how I was raised, and the generation that's coming up now. I watch this with my kids as they're raising my five grandchildren. And I don't care what it is that my grandchildren do, whether they make a poopy diaper, or they turn off the light uh, in the bathroom, or they pick something up that they've dropped. The two favorite words that all of my kids say as they're raising their kids are these two words, good job. Everything is good job. Good job. Good. Do you do that? Good job. And it occurred to me, I, looked, I, I thought back on my life and my parents, and I can't remember a single time that my mother or father ever looked at me and said, good job. So if I really want to get out, uh, get under uh, Allison's skin, she's doing something, I'll look at her, I'll go, good job. And uh, I don't want to tell you what she does after that, but I'll just tell you that I, that I do that. And I think that it's kind of born out of this desire to want to build self-esteem, to want to build self-esteem in your children and in your grandchildren. And I think that's a good thing. And we're in a series called Weeds in My Garden, and we're talking about different kinds of challenges, mental illness uh, issues, mental illnesses that we might be dealing with. And I know this one might seem like it's on the surface, but that's what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to be talking about self-esteem, particularly low self-esteem, and how that can move into actual self-loathing. And I'm going to start in a really unlikely place because that's just kind of me. And I want to see a show of hands here at our location, all locations. How many of you either were raised up with or have now a nickname or a shortened name? How many of you have that? Yeah, most of you. And you're called that, right? And the people in a, from a, in a familiar way, they, they call you that. Do you have, have any idea where that came from? Have you ever asked? And most of you maybe have that. Maybe some of the people in your family don't know why you have that particular name. And I think that would be 
a great conversation starter after the service today, if you're with family, to say, uh, so where did you get that name, or why do I call you that? Well, my name is one of those. It's an odd name, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something here that you probably won't believe at first, but then you will later, and that is that my name comes from a very strange, maybe even completely unique origin from any of you. Uh, so, uh, when my mom and dad were dating, uh, they had pet names for each other. Do you have pet names for each other? Those of you that are couples, right? Pet names for each other. And they really needed them. I mean, unlike a lot of families, my parents really needed that because my dad's name is Arlo Ellsworth. And, you know, I just can't see my mom going, Arlo, hey, Arlo. My mother's name was Bernice Lodge. So they had some weird names, right? And my mother wanted a familiar name to call my father. So instead of calling him Arlo, he called him Larry. He just, she just took the A and the L and kind of mixed it all up and came up with Larry. So that was her pet name for my dad. Well, my dad wanted to rhyme. He wanted to have a name that rhymed with Larry. So he called my mother Jerry, which has nothing to do with Bernice Lodge. So when my brother was born, my older brother, they named him Larry. I think I'm the only person at the crossing that was named after my mother. I don't know if any of you are named after your mother, but I was actually named after my mother. And, and uh, it, you know, it wasn't a Bible name. It wasn't something that, that came from, you know, an earlier person that was named that in my family. And as I reflect on it, I really like that name. I like it because it was based on my mom and dad's love for each other. So, you know, you all know that names mean things, right? They, they mean things to us. And that's just as an ancient thing as it is a contemporary thing, right? So like ancient Bible names all have meanings. Every one of them has a meaning. We interpret it into English and we go, okay, in English I think that's a really good message or I think that's a really good thing to say. And so I'm going to name my child this because it has this particular meaning. It might change the word, the, the, the letter, the way it's spelled, but... We kind of like that meaning. And I'm sure that if you've used a Bible name for one of your children when you named your children, you know what that name means. When I named my oldest Benjamin David, I knew that that meant, in Hebrew, it meant beloved son of my right hand. Uh, and all my other children have uh, meanings for their names as well. Jesse means the Lord is real. Joseph means the Lord will add, and Abigail means a father's joy. Now, I'm sure that even though they have those names, they haven't always lived up or down to those names. You know what I mean? That they haven't always felt like that whatever their name was or the meaning of that name, that that was like a, a description of their life. And I would imagine that goes for you too that you may struggle with your life, and maybe you have one of those kinds of names, but it just doesn't fit sometimes. And you know why that is? It's because life just happens. Doesn't it? 
Either life runs into you or you run into life. But when that happens, there is an impact. There's a collision. Whether it's things that other people did or things that you did, choices that you made or choices that other people made for you, or it's just maybe just life in general. When those things slam into one another, and they can slam into one another at a high rate of speed, it can create enough impact that will leave fractures in your life. You might have cracks in your life because of those circumstances and those impacts that happen. So I'm reflecting on this as I'm preparing to preach, and of course, first person that came to my mind was Naomi in the Old Testament. You, re, you can read her story in the book of Ruth. It's actually a very short uh, Bible book in the Old Testament. You can read it in probably 30, 45 minutes. But uh, her name in Hebrew, Naomi, is the way you would say my sweetness or sweetie. That was her name. But her life endured some incredible impacts. They were hard impacts. You see, uh, she was married. She had two boys. They were living in Israel, and a famine came. It had nothing to do with her. It had nothing to do with anybody else's choice. It just had to do with there wasn't enough rain, and there was a famine, and people were starving, and they had to figure out what to do. And so they decided to leave their home country and move down in the south to Moab, where there was food. And that had to be incredibly hard for her to leave family and extended family and culture and language and so many other things to go into this other pagan country, a country that worshipped idols. That would have been a hard impact on her. And after they had been there some time and her two sons had gotten married, her husband dies, leaves her a widow. Bam! That's another impact in her life. And no sooner does her husband die that not one but both of her sons die. Leaves her in a foreign country without a husband, without either one of her sons. She has two daughters-in-law and it, it just becomes more. It fractured her. It left cracks in her life. So much so that she said, I don't want anyone to call me Naomi anymore. From now on, I want you to call me Mara. Mara in Hebrew means my bitterness. The exact opposite of the name she was born with. From my sweetness to my bitterness. She uh, actually told her daughters-in-law to leave her to her bitterness and to go back to their people and start life over again. One of them refused to do it. Her name was Ruth. And that's what this, the book of Ruth is about. But understand this about Naomi. She was low. I mean, that's low self-esteem. Maybe to the point where we might call it self-hating or self-loathing. And you know what I think? I think that there are many of us that can relate to that. That there's something that's happened in your life, maybe multiple things that have happened in your life, and they have fractured you in some way. And when your life and your heart and your soul gets fractured, there's something that can happen that can be very destructive. And it's referred to in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. It says, see to it that no one 
fall short of the grace of God. Yet no, this is it right here. No bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. Low self-esteem is rooted in bitterness, a particular kind of bitterness, self-bitterness. It's like bitterness throws off these seeds, and those seeds find their way into the fractures and the cracks of your life, and that's where they germinate, and that's what the Hebrew writer is talking about when he says bitter root. It's like they get down inside those cracks, they germinate, and they start to grow, and bitterness starts to grow out of that. It can take over your whole life. It can define your personality. It can do all sorts of negative things. So, if you are struggling with low self-esteem, I am struggling with low self-esteem. Maybe it's even going further than that to self-hating or loathing or self-harm. What kind of hope does the Bible give us? What can we find in there that we can pull out of that? And what do we do with it? How do we incorporate that into our lives so that we won't be in this circumstance that can lead us to even worse circumstances? I was thinking about that, and there are so many Bible characters that I could call your attention to today. But I want to share with you, it's kind of like me, I want to share with you the story of someone that many of you, most of you, have never heard of before. Because he's an obscure character in the Bible. But I think that even in the obscurity of his character, he could really, really help you today. His story could really help you today. And his name is Mephibosheth. I want you to say that with me. It's Mephibosheth. Ready? Mephibosheth. Yeah. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. You may have heard of Jonathan. He is a a pretty famous character in the Bible because he was best friends with David, who later became king. He was also a prince because his father was King Saul. So he was uh, part of royalty. And Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Only that wasn't his name when he was born. When when Mephibosheth was born, he was born to the highest privilege that anyone could have had. I mean, he was the son of a prince who was the son of a king. He was in the royal family. He would live in the royal palace, right? But his name at birth wasn't Mephibosheth. It was Meribaal. Now, if you read that in your Bible, you might pronounce it Meribaal. And you may have remember the term Baal in the Old Testament because Baal was the name of an idol. His, uh, the, the name of this idol was actually not pronounced Baal. It's pronounced Baal. And here this little boy that is born to Jonathan and his wife, they name him Meribaal, which kind of at first goes, oh, you're naming your kid after an idol? Actually, it means It's a great name, and it means one who opposes Baal. So he looked at his son when he was born, thinking of what to name him. And he saw him 
as a hero who would pull down altars and idols so that people would worship the one true God instead of these false gods, these idols that were uh, raised up, right? And, and that was an idol that was worshipped at that time in Israel. And I think to myself, for his name to be Meribaal, what a great start. What a great start to life. Jonathan, as his father, is a great man, uh, a mighty man in the Old Testament, and kind of like Uncle David, you know, kind of his, his dad's best friend, and then to live in the palace and all of that. But you know what? The fracture came. Like it comes to all of us. Whether life runs into you or you run into life, the impact happens and fractures form and cracks begin to show themselves. And it came to him, little Meribah, when he was five years old. His grandfather, Saul, had betrayed God over and over again. To the point that God said to him that he was going to lose control of the throne, that the throne was going to be torn away from him. And then to the point when he continued to be this way, to the point where he said, I'm not going to protect you. You're going to go out there and you're going to have to live with the consequences of those mistakes. And one of those mistakes was to go to battle. But he went to battle anyway. And he died in that battle. And because Jonathan was a good son and stayed next to his father, even though his father was doing things that were against God, he too died in that battle. And they desecrated their bodies and they hung them on the outside wall of their city like a trophy. And the word went out to all of Israel that the king was dead and that his son was dead. And then, of course, you know it's going to be upheaval. Like, who's going to get control of the throne? Who's going to get control of the country? What's going to happen? And people kind of went berserk. And one of those people that went berserk was the nurse who was taking care of little Meribaal. She had him in her arms, and she was running with him, afraid that something bad would happen to him, wanting to protect him. And while she was running, overwhelmed with grief, holding him, and she hears this because she heard this news, she tripped and fell. Meribaal was thrown out of her arms and fractured both of his feet in the fall. They were not able to be set correctly or healed properly. And for the rest of his life, Mephibosheth, at that time known as Meribaal, was unable to walk. Five years old. You can't really blame him for any of this, right? Had to do with some decisions his grandfather made. It, it had to do with a battle he wasn't supposed to go into. Had to do with a decision that his dad made to honor his father. It had to do with, you know, a nurse that wasn't doing what she was supposed to do. It doesn't really matter if it was him or somebody else or just life in general. The, the reality of his life was that he lost everything. Before he even knew what it meant to have everything, he lost everything. He wasn't, he wasn't the son of a prince in a palace anymore. And none of it was his fault. But it became his reality. And after Saul died, eventually David became king. 
And David mourned the death of Saul, and he especially mourned the death of his best friend, Jonathan. And I want to pick that story up in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. And the king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down and paid him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid. Now, he had a reason to be afraid, because as the grandson of the previous king and the prince being dead, David could see him as a threat to the throne, right? But this is not how David responded. That's why he said, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And this is the part I really want you to see. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? I don't think that was hyperbole. I think that's exactly how Mephibosheth felt about himself. Because of what had happened in his life. Because of the fractures in his faith, in his heart, in his soul. And I think you would agree with me that that is showing some pretty low self-esteem. If that's how he views himself. And you know what? That's the problem with self-esteem. It's based in self. You see, esteem is what you and I need, but it's the self part of it that is the problem. And I'll explain that. You see, esteem, the definition of esteem, means to have respect for or admiration for. But it's kind of hard to have that for yourself, to respect yourself or admire yourself when you know what nobody else knows about you. And if they knew what you knew, what you know about you, they might not have very much esteem for you. And so, what do we do? We put on these fronts. We put on these plastic coatings. We try to make everybody think that we're something that we're not. You know, we're good actors when it comes to this kind of thing. Or maybe we're just the opposite. You know, we just want everybody to pity us for some reason. We say certain things that, that, that... to get some of that energy from them, right? All of those things start to happen because we're struggling with the idea of respect or admiration for self. You know you. Now, if you would go to a counselor, they can give you some great advice. And I think that this advice is all good. 
They would say things like overcome low self-esteem by learning to accept compliments. That's a good thing, right? Have you ever noticed that when you're struggling with low self-esteem, you want to prove everybody wrong when they compliment you? How about give yourself a break by using positive self-talk? That's a good idea. How about love yourself, flaws and all? Not the idea of what you want yourself to be, but who you are right now. Love yourself, flaws and all. Value the person that you are. That's good advice. Recognize that high self-esteem is an important thing. That it's good for you, that you need to have a higher view of yourself. Seek support, and it's always good to have people around you to encourage you and to lift you up when you feel low, right? How about this? Start a gratitude journal. Start writing things down, showing you the things that you can be grateful for that God has done in your life or that other people have done in your life. Try to squash negative thinking, they might say. Think of yourself as a friend, they might say. Just keep working on it, they might say. And like I said, all of those things are really good, good mechanisms. They're all good ideas, but there is something missing. Something missing in those ideas. And it's the spiritual problem that we all have with ourselves. Because I think that down deep, we can all feel a lot like Mephibosheth. Maybe not so deep. Maybe it's right up to the surface. Where we say things like, life hasn't been fair to me. Like life has left me broken. I am full of fear. I feel helpless. And I even feel shame. That you might like Mephibosheth, want to compare yourself to like a dead dog. I feel like that. And I think we need something more than coping mechanisms. Something more than the names that we give ourselves. You know, failure, regret, defeat, perfectionism, disappointment, circumstances, being a victim, going unnoticed. You know the names you give yourself. And that's why I started this sermon with this idea of names. The names other people give us, the names that we give ourselves. Because they kind of signify how we feel or how someone felt about us at the time. We need a new name. We need a new name. I think we need a new name that signifies a new self. You know who does that? God does that. God gives us a new name, and He gives us a new self. You can go back in the Old Testament. You remember Abraham? His name wasn't, he wasn't born Abraham. He was born Abram. But God changed his name to Abraham. You know why? Because Abram means exalted father. That's pretty good, right? But Abraham means father of a multitude. You see how God lifted him up? His wife's name, Sarah, that's not the name she was born with. She was born with the name Sarai. God changed it to Sarah. Sarai means my princess. That's pretty good. But Sarah means my queen. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. 
Jacob was a twin. He and his brother were both born breach. His brother was born before him. And when he came out of his mother's womb, his hand was holding on to the heel of his brother. The word Jacob means one who grasps the heel. It's also the term for usurper. And if you read about Jacob's life, that's exactly who he was. He did so many things, taking what did not belong to him. He was a usurper. But when he wrestled with God, God changed his name to Israel, which doesn't mean usurper, it means contender. And he elevated him. Jesus did it too. One of his closest friends and closest disciples was Simon. Simon, son of John. Right? And Simon's name means listener. That's good. But Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means rock. And you're all saying, well, that's well and good for Bible characters and Bible names. God gives you a new name. You have a new name. When I was a kid, we used to sing out of the hymnal. And there was a song in there, and it, it, and it went, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Let me show you where he said that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, God says, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. He has a new name for you, every one of you, that's in an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's not just a new name. It's not just a title. It's a new self that goes with it. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the new creation has come. That new self has come. The old self is gone. The new is here. He gives you a new self and a new name. That's pretty awesome. Mephibosheth had his father's land restored to him because David did that. David invited him to sit at the king's table, not as a guest, but as one of his own sons. And he got a new name. You see, when this story is told, it's told in reverse. Like all this has happened, and then the person is writing about it from the future to the past, right? Because in the future, his name is Mephibosheth. That's why it begins this way. Even though his name actually was Meribaal first. Huh. You see, Mephibosheth got a new name. And do you know what it means? No more shame. You're not a dead dog anymore. You're something completely new. We all have a self. You have one, I have one. And you have the fear and the shame that goes with that. But God can give you something that you can never ever give yourself. For all the coping mechanisms, 
Only God has the ability to give you the victory. And he does this by giving you a new self and a new name. And that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the only way. God doesn't want you to cope. He wants you to have victory in life. And you can have that victory in life. Listen, your land will be restored. You will sit at the king's table. You will because he's adopted you into his family. You see, he didn't just give you a new name. He gave you his name. Amen? Gave you his name. You belong with him. You belong in his family with a new name and a new purpose and a new future. And that only comes, that victory only comes in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're moving to a time of decision. So right now, some of you have never come into this relationship. Some of you have never stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about having religion, and I'm not talking about being a church member, and I'm not talking about having a religious family. I'm talking about you and Jesus having a relationship with each other. That's what I'm talking about. Where you understand Him. You see, self-esteem is kind of a lie. Right? Because you know the truth. You don't need to have esteem from yourself. It's not how you view yourself. It's how God views you. You need to have God esteem. See, you and I, we live down our identities. They're down in the lower story. It's all in the life circumstances that we have. We live down in this, in this kind of dark reality, kind of a locked basement that we can't get out of. Right? That's where we are. But if you could just hear for a minute how God views you. Not as a servant, but as a child. Not someone who doesn't deserve, but someone who does deserve. Not because of how you view yourself, but because of how he views you. How in the world can a God, almighty God, Look at someone like me and look at someone like you and go, I want you to sit at my table. I want you to be called by my name. You are so valuable to me. As a matter of fact, you're valuable enough that my only son would die for you and pay your debt so that I could give you eternity in heaven. This is how God views you. You know what? Why settle? Why settle for self-esteem when you can have God-esteem? Because that's where it all changes. When it's not so much how you view yourself, but how you know God views you. Because when you know that God views you that way, it changes how you view yourself. Some of you need to come into that relationship today. There's going to be somebody right over there by that baptistry that would love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means to take those next steps. Maybe that next step is today. Happens every week at the crossing, right? How many do we see today? You see the old self going down into the water? You see the new self coming up out of the water? Every, anybody ever look like really sad or like well, that was a bad decision when they came up out of the water? 
Some of you are going, I don't know if I want to do that because I know me and I'm inconsistent and I'm hypocritical and I'm going to blow it. Well, sure, you're going to blow it. Do you realize the battle that I go through every time I get up on that stage? What gives, who do you suppose is talking to me saying what gives you the right to tell other people how to live their lives when you're struggling with yours? Some of you will go, that's your inner voice, Jerry. Some of you will go, that's the devil, Jerry. I don't care what you call it. It's not how God views me. The reason I get to stand up on that stage and talk to you is because God says, son, get up on that stage and talk to people. Just that simple. And then I don't have, I don't have to get down into that low place. I can live up in the upper story if I choose to. And I invite you to today. Some of you are here today. You've made that decision, but don't think for a minute. You don't find yourself down in the shadows of that lower story. I do. And that's why we have steps at this stage where people can get down on their knees and they can cry out to a God who's their heavenly Father, who loves them beyond our even ability to understand it. And to cry out to Him. And He hears our prayers. And He lifts us up. And unlike Mephibosheth's nurse, He doesn't drop us. Ever. Maybe you just need that encouragement today. Spend some time with the Lord. Turn some stuff over to Him. Some of you, it may not be about you at all. It may be about someone that you love. You're carrying their burden right now. And you're hurting for them. And you're trying to figure out a way you can fix them. And you can't. But God can. And I invite you to bring them up and pray over them today. There's going to be plenty of people. This place is going to be full up here. But there's room. Would you stand with me? Pray with me, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Take this moment, your moment, like every moment. And I pray, Father, that you would break through where all the cracks are in our heart. All those roots that have sprouted. Bitterness, just another weed in the garden. I pray, Father, as you pull those weeds, mend those cracks, do that by the love that came from your son Jesus directly to us. In Jesus' name, amen.